I always appreciate it when people applaud before I start, because they never feel like it afterward. So, Art, we left off with you. As you were, as you were closing, uh, we were talking about the hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you have any suggestions on how we stimulate those appetites? Not really. I, for me personally, Art, I think that it's the uh, it's the awareness of how completely the world is conforming to its image, and how desperately I need that rectified. How uh, I'm going to talk about this in a moment, but how uh, attractive sin remains in my life. So I'll go there just right now. I ask myself, you know, why would anybody long for righteousness? What makes us hunger for it? And uh, the price for righteousness is usually high. And the truth of the matter is, irrespective of what anybody says, sin is fun. And uh, so I'd like to suggest the following reasons why we seek it. One is, that though sin is fun, it does not satisfy. Righteousness, though it is not fun, does satisfy. And as you've heard me comment so often in the past, that by and large in my life, what I enjoy does not satisfy, and what satisfies I do not enjoy. So I've got to make a decision. What am I going to go for? Number two, Although the price of righteousness is high, the price of sin is always higher. And I know you know this, but I'll remind you anyway, but nobody is going to get to heaven and be glad they sinned. Nobody's going to get to hell and be glad they sinned. Number three, because when you are righteous, your conscience affirms you And when you are unrighteous, your conscience condemns you. And number four, the Bible assures us that just the other side of death awaits judgment. As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after that, the judgment. Now, the Bible says that Jesus is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 But of him are ye made in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is the wisdom of God, the righteousness of God, the sanctification of God, and the redemption of God. If you want to be righteous, Jesus is where you go. So to hunger and thirst after righteousness is to hunger and thirst after our Lord Himself. This is the experience of the man who sees his need of Christ. He understands that nothing else can satisfy. 
Jesus is like the pearl of great price, which a man is willing to sell everything he's got to obtain. So the man who finds that his appetite for righteousness is satisfied in this life understands that he's never attained it. He doesn't know what he's looking for. Any questions or comments? Tom? Walt, is your, is your conscience always right? No. Um, let me put it this way. <coughs> Your conscience is not wrong, but it's not always right. I'll illustrate it for you by uh, a conversation that I had with TJ uh, a while ago at the break. <coughs> Let's say that you come from a, an environment in which it is uh, wrong to play cards. They're the devil's game. And uh, so, somebody invites you to play cards, and you start to play, but your conscience bothers you. And so you have to stop. Or you do it with a guilty conscience. But your conscience is guilty because it's unenlightened. That is, you do not know what the Bible teaches you regarding your conscience. And so when you get into the Bible and you say, what does the Bible teach regarding the playing of cards? You say... Nothing. Nothing at all. So, the guilt that you experience is a cultural guilt, not a biblical guilt. So, therefore, what you do is an act of your will. You say, I will to conform my conscience to the Scriptures. Because Scripture is the final court of appeal, not conscience. But I say that it will, conscience will not lead you astray because if culture tells you something is right when you know it is wrong, then culture, I mean, then conscience will let you know the culture is wrong at that point. So, for example, culture may say to you that homosexuality and lesbianism is normal, but your conscience tells you that it is not. So your conscience will not lead you astray in the direction of wrong. If you violate your conscience, you can teach it to be wrong. But it's not the natural instinct of the conscience to lead you in the direction of wrong. Am I making sense? Yes. I've read, and I can't remember the author, but uh, the point is that we have a dimension that is deeper than our conscience. And so the, the old saying, uh, let your conscience be your guide is really not a good way to go because our conscience is has been culturally conditioned over time. Um, and in God's economy, uh, if this dimension that we have is, goes much deeper than that, then uh, that conditioning could have happened over many, many years. So. Okay. I, have, I have no comment on that. Just the Scripture, not culture, not conscience, not anything. But the Bible is your final court of appeal. If you go to any other direction, you'll get on the backside of God. Well, I find that the, <clears throat> the closer I get to having a complete... Uh, the, 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 the more hunger and thirst I have for righteousness, the less I'm able to, um, 
do what's commanded in, in Philippians 4, which is to, uh, to pay attention to whatever's noble and whatever's right and, and all of those things. I'm just curious, how, how do you keep a focus on what is pure and noble and right and yet um, seek a complete and, and utter awareness of the lack of righteousness of this world? Well, I'm not going to be able to answer that completely, but we're two Beatitudes away from it. And we'll hit it, at least touch on it at that time. You had a comment, Robert? What is the source of conscience? The source of your conscience is creation. That God created you with a moral gyroscope, knowing right from wrong. And everybody has a conscience. Everybody knows right from wrong by virtue of the fact that everybody judges. Nobody is incapable of not judging. Therefore, this balarney about truth being relative is nothing but balarney. Nobody believes the truth is relative. Everybody believes it's absolute. The argument is not over is truth absolute or relative. The argument is always over who gets to define the absolutes. So you go to the most liberal institution in the country and they teach you that truth is relative garbage absolute garbage they don't believe it for a minute what they're simply saying is the absolutes of the Bible aren't absolutes but they want to replace them with their own so go ahead and fornicate but God forbid if you cut down a tree That's always the debate. Never be deceived by the debate that people think the truth is relative. Nobody believes it's relative by virtue of the fact that everybody judges. Nobody cannot judge. Right. For someone who, for someone who comes to know Christ, what, what's the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the conscience? The relationship of the Holy Spirit and the conscience is that the Holy Spirit will awaken, sensitize, but you still need the Word. You still need the Word. So the Holy Spirit awakens the conscience? Yes. Sensitizes it. Okay, let's go to the next beatitude. And uh, blessed are the merciful. Verse 7. For they shall obtain mercy. Now, in the eighth beatitude, Jesus talks about being persecuted for righteousness. A righteousness that you hunger and thirst for. Now, Jesus tells us how to respond to those who are persecuting you. You are to be merciful. Now, the Bible talks a great deal about this. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, Peter comes to Jesus and says, How many times must I forgive a man? Seven? Which, parenthetically, is quite magnanimous. And Jesus says, no, seven times seventy. And of course, I think we'd all agree that he didn't mean four hundred and ninety times, huh? Yeah, how terrible it would be if after walking with Jesus for forty years, you were coming up to the end. And the Spirit of God says, okay, one more forgiveness <laughs> and you go to hell. So that's not what he had in mind. So when Jesus talks about this with the disciples, he uses four words interchangeably. Mercy, compassion, forgiveness, and pity. 
I'm sure that you'd want to define those words differently, but Jesus lumps them all together when he talks about this important concept of being merciful. And what Jesus says is that if you want God to forgive you or be merciful to you, you have got to model it in your own life. So when the disciples said to him, teach us to pray, Jesus said, when you pray to the Father, you say this to him, Father, forgive me to the degree or to the same way that I forgive others. My behavior in being merciful to others becomes the litmus by which I want justice enacted against me. Now, as you all know, mercy is the setting aside of justice. For example, if I say to you, be merciful to me or forgive me, you'd say, for what? Where is the offense? The very statement, be merciful, assumes there has been a transgression. If there's been no offense, there's no reason to be merciful. I mention this to you because Jesus connects these two together. Mercy follows righteousness. All people everywhere insist on righteousness while at the same time insisting on mercy. And I just invite you to look at our own society, gentlemen. We probably have one of the most litigious societies that ever has come down the historical pike. I mean, all you have to do is look crosswise at somebody and they'll sue you. Everybody wants justice. But nobody wants to be judged. When was the last time you heard a sermon on judgment? But the truth of the matter is you cannot have judgment anymore I mean, uh, without uh, uh, justice then you can have righteousness I mean, mercy without righteousness. They go together. They're coupled. You cannot have judgment. Excuse me. You cannot have justice without judgment. You cannot have mercy without righteousness. So, if you are not righteous, you do not want to face justice which you want is mercy but you insist that justice be handed out to other people because you have a sense of righteousness about you that's the nature of the animal now the genius of the cross gentlemen is the marriage of righteousness and mercy so that the Bible says that in Jesus Christ God is able to be both just and and the justifier. He can be just while at the same time being merciful. Without Christ, you have no hope. Am I making sense? So God says, if you want mercy, you've got to show it. Now, some general observations on this. Number one is, as noted in the introduction, 
The purpose of our Lord Jesus is not to teach you how to be saved, but rather to teach you who the saved are. Those who show mercy will find mercy when they meet God. But only those who acknowledge their poverty of spirit will be willing to show that mercy. The reason we show mercy, gentlemen, is because when the transgression exists, we say to ourselves, in our soul of souls, there go I, but by the grace of God. Only the staying power of the Holy Spirit in my life that does not make me like the person I need to forgive. Am I making sense? Now, again, it is in the nature of the case that we all, in our interpersonal relationships, think that we need to show more mercy more often than we need it. We need to forgive more often than we need to be forgiven. That's just how we are. We sense that people offend us far more often than we offend people. And I would suggest to you, it's just simply an illustration of the distorted, warped view of yourself. So, Jesus says, understand that those who are unwilling to show mercy have no biblical ground for believing that they are saved. Comments. Okay. Let's talk about the twin attributes of pure in heart and peacemaking. I say twin attributes because... The Bible links them together. You remember what James 3.17 says. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. So purity and peaceable go together. Those who are in vital union with Jesus Christ are pure toward God and at peace with their fellow man. That's why the Proverbs 16.7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. Now, also note, as we get into these twin Beatitudes, that we're both passive and active. The Bible talks about this a great deal. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to willing to do of his own good pleasure. Well, make up your mind, Paul. Which is it? He said, yes. So, it's both. So let's talk about the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Gentlemen, in the ministry of our Lord Jesus, he said, Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. I'm not sure, but I believe that if Jesus were ministering to us today, he would say to us, that's no longer the case. Men do not need darkness to be evil. They will do in broad daylight what in yesteryear they would be ashamed of. 
It was not that many years ago when the homosexual would be ashamed of the fact. And now he is in your face. Adamant that if you do not acknowledge the rightness of his case, it is you who are intolerant and wrong. And I want you to think about this question of purity just for a moment. Here is a man and a woman who will copulate in front of a movie camera and then allow it to be shown to the world as we go and feast our eyes on it. And when we are done feasting our eyes, we call them stars in our heroes and heroines. Think about what you're doing, gentlemen. Think about what you're doing. There is no shame. Gentlemen, there are three safety nets for shame in your life. Your conscience, your society, and the fear of God. And we've already talked about how fragile that conscience is and how easily it is distorted. And I suggest to you that your society in the day and age in which we live will give you no help in this area. And therefore, the only thing you have left is the fear of God. And if you do not believe that there are eternal consequences for your temporal behavior and that you will stand before the living God and regret for eternity the filth that you allow flowing through your mind, I want to tell you, gentlemen, you will be void of shame. So I ask you, what do you allow your eyes to see? Last year, Winston was telling us that John Malone, the head of TCI, said, what percent of the hits were pornographic? 85? 85. 85% of all hits on the Internet are pornographic. Gentlemen, I want to ask you, are you part of that 85? It doesn't matter whether anybody knows about it. God does, and He's the only one that counts. Men, I was reading Time Magazine, and one of the editorials in Time Magazine was taking uh, Sports Illustrated to task for one of their issues. I'm not a subscriber to Sports Illustrated, but this editorial, and remember now, Time Magazine is not the paragon of virtue. <laughs> it was taking Sports Illustrated to task for some issue in which they were showing bathing suits because it was just raw pornography. And the, the author of the editorial said, I'm no feminist, but that's way, way too much. And I suggest to you, gentlemen, there is no such thing in our society today of way too much. It doesn't exist. Unless you nail down in your soul of souls a fear of God Almighty, I want to promise you on the words of our Lord Jesus, you'll never see God. Any questions or comments? Yes. On the other side of the coin, Walt, as intense as the loss would be for indulging in this 
activity, would you say that would be just an intense of a gain if we abstain? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, that's what I'm trying to point out. So sin is fun, you simply cannot afford it. Let's not kid ourselves. It's attractive. That's why 85% of the hits are pornography. It's attractive. When I was a young man, we used to have a saying regarding sex. There are two groups of men. Those who had problems with it and liars. (laughs) So the issue is not the attractiveness of it. The issue in the final analysis I submit to you is the fear of God. If that net does not hold you, then you are without hope. Questions or comments? Since this stuff is so prevalent now, what can we do for our sons who are being raised around this in a daily exposure through ordinary television, advertisements, everything? Take it out of your house. Don't have a TV in the home. But in the final analysis, if your son does not fear God, it's not going to help. But gentlemen, the fear that he develops of God is in large measure going to be the product of his seeing the fear of God in your life. Don't expect your son to have what you do not have. You do reproduce after your own kind. Whether you want it or not, it is the law. Any other questions? Okay. Let me note with you that a clear conscience does not mean a pure heart any more than a clear conscience means a clean conscience. They're entirely different. The kind of movies that you attend, you can come out with a clear conscience, but you can also come out with a filthy heart. Now, again, let me suggest to you that men can see more clearly fault in the lives of others than they can in themselves. You've got a business deal that you wonder whether or not it's marginal in its ethics. It's not clear to you. You take it to a buddy who loves you enough to be honest with you, and he laughs in your face. He says, Of course it's illegal, of course it's not ethical. Why'd you bring it to me? Why? Because you can see it more clearly than I can. That's the reason why. And let's not kid ourselves on that. And gentlemen, that is the reason you need accountability. You need a band of brothers who watch for your soul as they that must give it an account. And I'm getting so that I look men that I spend time with right in the eye and I want to, I ask them, are you mentally cheating on your wife? 
Are you keeping yourself pure? Do you visit those pornography sites on the internet? What kind of movies do you attend? Tell me about it. Now, men, they may lie to me, but they'll lie to me looking me right in the eye. And I suggest to you that you need men who will love you enough to be honest with you and ask those hard questions. Finally, let me suggest to you what it means to see God. First and foremost, you won't see Him in eternity if you're not pure of heart. But you won't see Him here either. Now, the Bible is not ambiguous on this subject, gentlemen. The Bible says that your ability to understand and see spiritual truth is the result of the Spirit of God revealing it to you. And if you think it's otherwise, you are blind. And I call, just by will of illustration, to you the parables that Jesus began to give in Matthew 13. He starts with the parable of the sower. And at the end of the parable, the disciples call him aside and say, Why do you speak to the people in parables? And in Matthew 13, verses 10 to 17, he tells them why. And in essence, what he says is, I speak to them in parables so that they haven't the finished idea of what it is I am saying. They'll walk down the hill and say, wasn't that wonderful? I love those stories. And they won't have the faintest idea what it is I was saying to them. And Jesus said, that's my objective. And the reason I have that objective is I know they have no desire to apply it. And if you are not pure of heart, when you go into the Word of God, I want to tell you, you will come out of there saying, boy, that was a wonderful God. Really communed with Jesus I really learned an awful lot. And the Spirit of God will say to you, you have deceived yourself. You have not met God. You cannot see God without purity of heart. Are we together? Stand. Could I ask, are you linking purity of heart with obedience? Are you linking purity of heart with obedience? I would say that Purity of heart is one form of obedience, not the whole package. It's a subset of obedience. But men, every one of you know, every one of us, including me, knows when we are pure in our thought life and when we are not. You know whether or not you fantasize over immorality. Whether you look more than at a glancing look at a beautiful woman who is improperly dressed. You know. I don't have to talk to you about it. You know. I don't need to know. The one you need to hide it from, you can't. That's why you desperately need to fear God. I'm not sure that there's ever been an age which men have been exposed to it to the degree we have today. 
when I was a lad, having sex was hard to get. Today, they'll come after you. It's a different world we live in out there. And unless you purpose in your heart to be pure, you have no hope. I don't want to hammer that too hard. I'll go on from here. Any other questions? Yes. Um, I think I find in my life when I sin, uh, I feel uh, a lot of shame. Is there a difference between shame and uh, fear of God? Not necessarily. Because remember, shame can come from three places. It can come from your conscience. It can come from your environment, society, your dad, your mom, your friends, and God. See, gentlemen, men will do in the presence of God what they would never do in the presence of another person. At least that's the way it used to be. Now they're so void of shame, they don't make any difference anymore. But yeah, you can have shame without a fear of God. You bet. Any other questions or comments? Jack, I'm in trouble now, guys. Kind of on the uh, on that same question. In a, in addition to learning the fear of God from your parents, what's the mechanism you learn the fear of God in addition to that? I mean, I mean, what's I get there. Only the scriptures that I'm aware of. Being in the scriptures? Being in the scriptures. And listening carefully to what the scripture says. Because many delude themselves into believing that forgiveness eliminates consequence. And it does not. It doesn't in this world, and it doesn't in the world to come. Yes. Start with you, Art, and then we'll go over to Charles. Yesterday we read uh, where Solomon said there's there's nothing new under the sun. Did he not anticipate the corruption of today? It's a question of degree, Art. Just a question of degree. Now, nothing new today. It's just our access to it. See, gentlemen, a thousand years ago, we didn't have the Bible. But a thousand years ago, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have billboards. We didn't have the press of people. We didn't have the radio. We didn't have television. We didn't have movies. A lot of an individual's time was spent in the quietness of his own mind. It's gone now. It's gone. Rarely do I jump in a car with a man. He picks me up at the airport and we go someplace where the, tele- where the radio is not on. See, now we don't want to be alone with our minds. We want to fill it with noise. Detract us. And so I believe that the only antidote is the scriptures. See, a thousand years ago they didn't have the Bible. At least in that form that we could get it. Now you can get it in dozens of translations. And unless you're availing yourself of that as an antidote to the the sound bites of the world, I'm telling you, you're lost. There's no chance, no chance at all, no hope. So, no, I think it was there in Solomon's day. It was just was not available like it is now. 
Charles? Yeah, if you don't know when God or Jesus begins speaking to you in parables for the purpose of obfuscating, what do you do to uh, make sure you're not there? Yes, good, good, good question, gentlemen. The way you go is to the first beatitude. You break yourself before God. You begin to mourn that holy grief and plead with God. And again, I remind you, gentlemen, God is not obligated to acknowledge and accept your repentance. Forgiveness does not obligate God and never think that it does. See, we think we're so smart. We think we're so careful. So clever. We say to ourselves, I'll go ahead and visit the site or I'll go ahead and watch the movie. I'll go ahead and fantasize. And then I'll come to Jesus and 1 John 1, 9. He'll, he'll cleanse me. He'll forgive me. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe not. So it's that brokenness, that acknowledgement that he has no obligation and you're desperate. Then maybe, maybe he'll open your eyes. Yes, Gene. Uh, can you give us a definition between the difference between guilt and shame? No, I don't think I know the difference between those two words. I use them in my, my thinking as synonyms, although if you're a wordsmith, you might be able to give me some differences. What did you have in mind? I was told that guilt is acts. Where shame is who I am. How, I, how my conscience tells me who this person is. Guilt is it the actual transgression. Okay. Again, I would, not, I would not want to argue about that. I would say that would be fine. But in either case, we've got very little of it in our society. Any other questions? Okay? Peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, it's interesting that peace is a word very much in vogue, probably in every generation. We've got diplomats flying all over the world trying to find peace, trying to be, bring peace between the Jews and the Arabs, between the various tribes in Rwanda, all the hot spots of the world. Peace, peace, peace. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that that is the attraction of Antichrist. He is the one who comes promising to at long last bring peace. But from the Antichrist we can see that peace can never come at the expense of truth. If you're in the Beatitudes, cast your eyes down to verses 43 following. That last paragraph before the close of the fifth chapter. 
Jesus says, Ye have heard that it had been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publics and sinners the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. The key to being a peacemaker is to love your enemies. These are the people that Jesus says in verse 45 become the children of the Father. Now, peace with self and peace with others is not possible without a, an, a, an eternal motivation mechanism functioning in your life. If you're not motivated for the eternal rather than the temporal, you will not be at peace with yourself and you will not be at peace with others. First, let's take a look at yourself. You will not be at peace with yourself because you'll be unable to say with the Apostle Paul, and having food and raiment, let us be there with content. It's the lack of contentment that breaks the peace. An eternal hope ensures a dependence upon God. And when a man declares his autonomy from God, he guarantees the anarchy of his passions. And in the heat of passion, a man will do what under the influence of reason he abhors. With others. You will never be able to have peace with others unless you have an eternal hope. Why? We've already talked about it. Because you can find yourself continually competing with them for temporal resources. As we said earlier, the difference between you and them is you have an eternal city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Your citizenship is not here. Interesting, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 said, to the Jews... I am a Jew. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, Paul, what do you mean you're a Jew? You are a Jew. What do you mean to the Jews you are a Jew? You are a Jew. Paul said, no, 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 I'm not. You misunderstand. My citizenship is no longer here. I'm a child of my father. And my father knows no such distinctions. And gentlemen, you'll never be at peace with others unless you can say that in your soul. If you have a temporal hope, if you're motivated by the temporal, then you will be at war with your fellow man because the resources of this life are limited. Any questions before we go on? Okay, let me make some... Oh, yes, go ahead. Could you turn that around and say that if you are having difficulties with your fellow man, that would suggest that you have focused on the temporal, even having deceived yourself? Yes. Yes. Well, let me, gentlemen, let me make a, uh, an exception to that. 
It may be that you are in confrontational with another individual because you have their interest at heart rather than your own. You never are at peace as an excuse to allow for unrighteousness to rule. Peace and appeasement are not the same. So when when I sin, you are in my face. Not because you want to declare war with me, but because you love my soul. When you take your brother to a task, or your wife, or your child, or whoever it is, be prepared to defend before God that you did it because you had their best interest at heart. Theirs. Not yours. Theirs. And if you haven't theirs, Steve, then you go out and take a long walk around the block and get your heart right. And understand that there is no such thing as having a problem with anybody other than God. So God says, you want to be at war? Be at war with me. I can handle it. I'm big. Hit me. Just don't hit your fellow man, that's all. Yes, Steve. Did you say that First John 1, 9, and 10 is not to be taken literal? Oh, no, it's taken literally. That's exactly right. It's to be taken literally, yes. So what, but it doesn't obligate God. There is no obligation to God. None. And that's why you've run across in the prophets. The prophets call the people to repentance with, the, with these words. It may be that God will acknowledge your repentance and forgive you. No obligation on the part of God. That's your hope. Winston. Walt, how do you answer the man that would say then uh, that First uh, John one nine is a promise of God? It is a promise of God. Well, then, how can he not be obligated if he has given his word? He'll do that because Winston, he is obligated only to his own, and nobody knows whether they're his own. That's why we call it assurance of salvation rather than the fact of. Let, let make sure I understand what you're saying. So you're saying that that the, uh, the promise, he is obligated only to the elect. The problem we have is we don't know whether we're the elect or not. Precisely. Okay. Precisely. And when you are in rebellion or when you violate what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes, you forfeit the assurance. Yes. So would that be at least one of the reasons why Paul says, I work out my salvation in fear and trembling? Right. And why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, 5, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove yourselves. Know ye not that Jesus Christ lives in you, unless perchance you are reprobate? Make your calling and election sure. Gentlemen, Peter says, If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Yes. Um, Do you think someone can have a false fear of God? Like convince themselves of 
I don't have an example, or but can, do you think someone can think they have a fear of God and not? I don't know. It's a good question, Scott. I don't know. I'm simply saying, if a man doesn't really fear God, he doesn't understand. Have you ever read the Chronicles of Narnia? Remember when they asked whether Aslan was safe? Remember what he said? He's good, but he's not safe. God is good, gentlemen. But never deceive yourself into believing he's safe. Safe he is not. Yes, Chris. Um, excuse me. Does, does Satan work then? Because there's so many passive Christians out there that you know, hold the faith of God, but that aren't walking with him. Does Satan work in, in, in them to give them a false sense of, spiritual, of, of assurance that they really don't have? Cause yes. The God of this world blinds their minds. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ should shine to them and they should be saved. Yes. And that's why Jesus said, Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, etc. And Jesus said, I never knew you. Interesting, gentlemen, the all-knowing God looks you in the eye and says, I never knew you. Now, if that doesn't terrify you, I submit nothing will. Yes, Bill. I, I'm sorry, you have to bear with me. First, I'll take this out of my mouth. <coughs> I, I'm a rather new believer, and, and so I may not have some of the concepts down, so my apologies. But it seems, no it seems to me that when I first became a believer, one of the things I was told was that you are now saved, and that you do not need to be concerned or worried about earning your way into heaven. So could you could you balance that with what I just heard said a minute ago? Yes. You see, Bill, there are a lot of us who are just brand new in the faith, aren't there? We all are brand new in it, yes. So gentlemen, you notice that we never call it the fact of salvation, we always call it the assurance of salvation. Assurance is the product of a healthy relationship. For example, if I told you, I'm not sure if my wife loves me, you say to yourself, hmm, something wrong with that marriage. Agreed? But, I may be assured that my wife loves me only to find that she doesn't. Agreed? That's why we call it assurance. Assurance can never take away from faith. And faith is commitment without knowing. Which you know, you don't need to walk by faith. And without faith, you cannot please God. So he says, I don't want you to know. I want you to have reason to be assured. So, I am not good in order to be saved. I am good to the degree that I am. Because I am saved. But if I am not good, it is an indication that I am not saved. If I am not good, it is an indication that I am not saved. Gentlemen, you say, I love my wife with a passion. I really love her. Man, she is the love of my life. And you're sleeping around. You're fantasizing mentally with other women. I say, you don't love her. You're kidding yourself. 
And you say to me, I love Jesus, but I love sin as well. I'd say to you, you do not know Jesus. You're kidding yourself. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Listen, the rulership of sin in the life of the believer is a contradiction of terms. It's like saying honest men are liars. It cannot be. I don't know how to make it more plain than that, gentlemen. Assurance was designed for the obedience. It was never designed for the disobedient. Never designed for the willful. I want to tell you, gentlemen, that God did not save you to put you back in the Garden of Eden so that you can eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with impunity. That was not His intent. Justification is always to sanctification. God did not save you as an end in itself. God saved you so that you could be conformed into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you are resisting that process, then you better go back to square one and ask yourself, am I really in union with Jesus? Am I communicating? Or am I still ambiguous? Let me finish with the, the really good news. You get to be persecuted for all this. Because <laughs> he says in verses 10 through 12, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now, most of us will challenge the notion that we are blessed when we are persecuted. That certainly has got to be counterintuitive. Now, we talked in our sessions about the fact that there are no victims. But there are blessings that are attached to the people who are abused for the right reasons. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.20, For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if, if, when you do well and suffer for it. Now, that's acceptable with God. If you get hit over the head for that which is your own dumb fault... You've got no one to blame but yourself. But if you do right and suffer for it, now, said Jesus, now you and I are on the same page. So, this beatitude naturally follows the seven that are before it because to the degree that you are Christ-like in these beatitudes, you are going to face opposition. Jesus said it himself, Woe to you when all men say well unto you. Jesus, Peter, I can't even say his name. Paul said it. Yea, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Part of what Jesus had in mind when he said in John, the servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, trust me, they will persecute you also. Now, obviously, compromise is the key to escaping persecution. 
Only a sadist enjoys inflicting pain on others. Most people will gladly relent if you come their way. So Paul, probably more than any other people in the New Testament, apart from our Lord Jesus himself, models this. That is, he intentionally stood in harm's way for the sake of the gospel and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Now, increasingly, people avoid hostility by compromise. So, we're muted when it comes to speaking against things like homosexuality. We don't appear intolerant, after all. And instead of proclaiming the truth, we say, well, it seems to me, rather than, thus saith the Lord. Now, notice here, that Jesus establishes two conditions for being blessed. One, falsely, and secondly, for his sake. Those are the two conditions you've got to be, have met. People cannot be justified in persecuting you, and it cannot be for any cause other than Christ's. And finally, note with me that Jesus motivates us with both a promise and an example. The promise is great will be your reward in heaven. Now, as far as I can tell, this is the first time Jesus suggests to us that there are varying degrees of heaven. That is, if you face persecution flat on, For the sake of Christ, your reward is great in the kingdom of heaven, and conversely, by implication, to the degree that you're unwilling to, you will not. And then the example. He says, when it happens to you, believe me, you are in good company. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Now, gentlemen... I want to suggest to you that it's hard, if not impossible, to motivate people to endure hardship without promising some kind of reward. And equally, I want to suggest to you, it is cruel and unfair to motivate people with reward if it is not forthcoming. So either Jesus meant what he said, or he's lying to us. And if he meant what he said then you can count on his doing what he said he will do. Amen? Amen. Well, I'm going to quit here. The time is up. God bless.